Wow, that's like the most cooperative school classroom I've ever seen. I'll get out the front and people just stop talking. Well, we're starting a new series, as you can see by the fact it says part one. It's one of 11 parts. Uh, we're starting a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And what a good time to start. New year, good time to start something new. Let's open up in prayer as we look at God's word. May it have its word work in our life. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have had time to reflect on the fact that you have entered into our world, into our struggle. You have dealt with all of the weaknesses and struggles that we are confronted with, yet without sin, and with the express purpose of coming to be a substitute on our behalf to take our punishment. We thank you that you have not only taken our punishment and promised us eternal life, but you have a plan and you have um, provided for us that we may engage with you, that we may have relationship with you even now, not, not, not just something we're waiting for sometime in the future. And Lord, we thank you that you've instructed us how to live in relationship with you and how to live in relationship with one another. And as we study your word, may it achieve its purpose for which you inspired Paul to write it within our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to a new year, everyone's out there making off their New Year's resolutions. Everyone's saying, I've got to lose this number of kilos by this time. That's probably in my list for good reason. Or I'm going to get better, more disciplined in the way in which I spend my money. Or I'm going to start to take on this hobby, learn these particular skills. And I've noticed that in a lot of people's resolutions, most of them tend to be about things that people want to train themselves for or practice, whether it's training to be more disciplined in being healthy, being more disciplined in, in the ways in which they spend their money, or trained in to um, just better live in a healthy manner. Now, all of these are good things, but as a Christian, they shouldn't be our primary pursuit. When we think about what is our primary goals, and people will ask us, what are you aiming for in 2017? If we list a whole lot of things like I've just mentioned, what we communicate to everyone is, these are the things that I think are most important and these are what I'm going to work on. The reason why I say these things shouldn't be our primary pursuit, and there's nothing wrong with them as being pursuits, is that our identity is not found in our weight, what skills we have, how good we are with our budgeting. The, our identity is defined by scripture. Are we are children of God. We are united with Christ. And if our identity is so intimately tied up with our relationship with Christ, so much the scriptures in Colossians say, Christ, who is your life? In Acts 17, Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. If that is to be truth, then our primary pursuit should have something to do with him. In Jesus' many interactions, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He understood there was a primary pursuit in the life of those who belong to him. Today, as we begin a new series in the fruit of the spirit, it's going to be an 11-part series. Today is pretty much 
an introduction. So if you thought I was going to go into great detail of all the individual aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, you might be a bit disappointed with that this morning. But just like our New Year's resolutions, they are things which we are to be pursuing. But there's some very distinct differences with those and our New Year's resolutions. Our New Year's resolutions tend to be things that we, within our own ability, aim to achieve. But the very fact these things are called the fruit of the Spirit, we are depending upon not our abilities, but the enabling of the Holy Spirit. But while I could just go straight to verse 22 and we read through that, it becomes, it is part of a letter that was written in Scripture. It is part of a greater part of a book. And it makes sense, as it does in all parts of scriptures, to understand them in the context of the book in which they they belong to. We read in the first couple of verses that it was written by the Apostle Paul to the churches, plural, in Galatia, because predominantly they were meeting in people's homes and your church size was limited by how many people you'd squish into your house. But it also gives us something by way of an indication of what was going on in the life of the particular churches to which Paul was writing. In the very first chapter we have these words. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I will say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you've received, let him be accursed. So here here is the nature of the church. Paul has founded the church. He's established them upon the solid foundation of the gospel. And he's reminded them in the early chapters of the book of Colossians of what that gospel was that he delivered to them that we come into right standing with God, not by our works, but we are justified by grace received through faith. But since the time that Paul has gone away and on to other things, others have entered into the church and placed other requirements, things that they deem necessary for salvation. With particular focus upon adherence to the Old Testament law and specifically circumcision and Sabbath keeping making those things as requirements in order to be saved. Now, there's been a bit of division in the church between those who hold fast to the gospel which Paul has delivered and those who are taking on this new teaching that others have brought in in distorting the gospel. Before addressing that, it's worth noting that Paul's own background. Remember when we went through Philippians 3? He says, I was a man who was zealous and with regards to the law, I was blameless. So as Paul speaks against these people who are making adherence to the law as being a requirement, Paul is someone who once held strict adherence to the law, something very precious. But something has changed. To give you a quick overview of some of the key passages, to give you an indication of where it gets to at this point, I've got three key passages I want to look at. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. 
So Paul nails his, his colours there pretty clear. He says, no one will be justified by works of the law. A few verses later, verses 18 to 21. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Note that last thing. He says, if it was possible to be in right standing with God through works of the law, then Jesus didn't have to die. And lastly, from chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So here's Paul who once held strict adherence to the law as something precious and something that had to be done. And now he speaks of this, this law as being something that they were held captive, imprisoned under, and describes it as a guardian. Now the Greek word which is behind this word guardian is really a combination of two words which basically means child leader. It was a term that described the way it was just used in everyday language. It would describe a slave who existed within the household who would be given the temporary care of the owner's children in order to escort them somewhere say, to escort them to church, to, not to church, to, to school or something like that, to get them there safely. And Paul takes that language and replies that to the Old Testament law. He says, it is like a temporary guardian that God has assigned in order to guide his people to a particular location. And in these verses, it says, that location is that we might, might become sons of God through faith in Christ. This is, and it has done its purpose, it has served its purpose to reach us to that destination. So in contrast to this new teaching that had come into the church, Paul says the final destination of the law has reached its fulfilment. Don't go back. Or as he says in the very first verse of chapter 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So our structure as to where we're headed today, verses 13 to 15, we're going to look at what is Christian freedom. Verses 16 to 18, we look at the contrast and the conflict that exists between the flesh and the spirit. Verses 19 to 21, we look at the works of the flesh. And 22 to 26, what does it mean to be keeping in step with the spirit? So firstly, what is Christian freedom? In verse 1, Paul says, it is for freedom that we have been set free. Now, if we get to verse 13, the first part of our reading, it says, you have been called to freedom. So we've, for freedom, we've been set free. That was the purpose why we were set apart. Yet we are called to freedom. 
and in this context, particularly freedom from slavery to the Old Testament law. Now, freedom's a term that often gets misunderstood. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who love that verse in chapter 5, verse 1, is for freedom that God has set us free to make people think, I'm a Christian now, I can do whatever I want. That's freedom as I define it, or as they define it, not I personally. Freedom does not mean anything goes. It doesn't mean my sins have been forgiven, Jesus is a forgiving kind of guy, I can do whatever I like and it doesn't matter. Matter of fact, that exact idea gets put forward in the book of Romans, the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6. It says, you know, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And you can imagine how some would think, well, grace is a good thing. And if we're not sin more, grace happens more, then surely sinning more must be good because there's more grace. But the conclusion that Paul reaches in the start of chapter 6 is, shall I go on sinning? May it not be so. Even here in Galatians 5, when he speaks of us being called to freedom, he doesn't, makes it very clear. It doesn't mean do whatever your flesh desires. Directly after he says you are called to freedom, he says only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now we're going to see as we look a bit later that the flesh and spirit are such contrast that they actually are a hindrance to the work of the spirit. Now, if Jesus died in order to set us free from sin, it would be a mockery that something that cost his life for us to desire to continue in it. As a new creation, we should not be continuing to pursue our selfish desires, but to lovingly serve one another. Now, remember in John chapter 13, Jesus has been there, he's washed his disciples' feet. And he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. When Paul says in verse 14, the law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Some of you might read that and think, hang on, Paul's a bit of a heretic. He's left out something pretty significant there. When Jesus spoke about it, he says the law is fulfilled in two commands. One, that you love the, love the Lord your God. And the other, that you love your neighbour as yourself. And here's Paul leaving out the first one. Now, before you label him as a heretic and write him off, Paul is writing specifically addressing the ways in which they interact and deal with one another. He's talking about their interpersonal relationships. So he's saying in terms of the, what the law, the summary of the law on how you relate to each other, then he is correct in that sense. And the reason why he's focusing so heavily on this is it appears the exact opposite is happening in the Galatian church. They are not a loving community serving one another. As we see the ways that they're described in verse 15, they're described as biting and devouring one another. The types of things that we'll see later on are described as being the works of the flesh, not the things of the fruit of the spirit. But instead of just saying, come on, fellas, don't be fleshly, Paul actually gives them some instructions. How do you put to death the works of the flesh? And in verses 16 to 18, our second section looks at how the flesh and the spirit are at opposite, opposite, polar opposites, at contrast. 
Paul's advice to them is, I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Notice those words. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not. He doesn't say, if you walk by the Spirit, it increases your chances that you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. He says, if you're walking by the Spirit, guaranteed you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If only we could do that perfectly, that would be wonderful. Now that might seem like a nice Christian term. What does it mean to walk by, walk by the Spirit? Does it mean somehow as I walk around I've got a particular spiritual way in which I do it? As we look at verses 15 to 26, sorry, 16 to 25, we see four different ways Paul speaks of the Spirit-led life. In verse 16 he talks about walking by or living by the Spirit. Verse 18, being led by the Spirit. Verse 25, living by the Spirit. And verse 25 again, keeping in step with the Spirit. Now each one of those expressing a continued dependence upon the leading and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. So why would Paul put such a great emphasis upon the leading and empowering of the Spirit as a solution to the flesh? For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. The flesh and the Spirit are so profoundly opposed to one another. The flesh desires to find joy and fulfilment in sin, yet the Spirit wants us to find joy in in holiness and convicts us of sin. They just completely butt heads. But Paul says they're so far opposed that each of these keep you from doing the other. Now, it's sort of intentionally vague there, I believe, that it could actually be applied either way. That when you are pursuing the things of the flesh, it keeps you from walking by the Spirit. In the same way as he's already said, if you walk by the Spirit, you will stop fulfilling the desires of the flesh. But either way you look at it, make no mistake. Choosing one, the flesh or the spirit, will greatly hinder the other. Choosing the flesh will significantly damage your spiritual life and your ability to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Likewise, living by the spirit will help you to put to death the fleshly side as spoken of also in Romans 8.13. So you can understand why we have a real struggle as Christians, can't you? We have two pastors, one that still desires this fleshly stuff, yet we have the Holy Spirit within us who wants to transform us to be more like, more like Jesus Christ. You're in good company. If you find that a struggle, Paul found it a struggle. You read through Romans 7 and he speaks about that struggle, how he can't do the things that he wants to do and he, all the things he wants to do he doesn't do. But he concludes in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. What does that mean? Does that mean that if you have the Holy Spirit, that all of a sudden every command of the Old Testament, you just piff them on into the bin? It doesn't mean that. The Old Testament law is a reflection of God's moral character. God had views and character upon these things before the law ever existed. They didn't come into existence. God didn't all of a sudden hate murder after the the Old Testament law was written. His moral standards have always been the same and the law was a reflection of his character. 
However, because the law's role was to be a temporary guardian to lead, guardian to lead people to Christ, we are not to place ourselves under strict obedience to the Old Testament law as though it were our master. It would be a little bit like having a big, massive DVD collection and all you do is look at the trailers. You've got the finished product. You've got the thing that it was pointing to. Invest your time there. If the spirit and the flesh are at, at odds, one of them leading you closer in your relationship with God and the other leading you away from God. It's probably helpful to identify each so we can pursue putting to death one and pursue living by the spirit the other. So Paul addresses first the works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Need to note there that this list here, the, the works of the flesh, is not a comprehensive list. You'll see the words very clearly there I've underlined. The song is underlined. It says, and things like this, and all other fleshly things, or those who do such things. Likewise, as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, it's not a comprehensive list either. But when we look at what Paul has specifically addressed, he addresses, you could probably put them into four categories. Sexual sins, religious sins, interpersonal sins and drinking sins. This is not the only time Paul puts together a list of vices that human fleshly desire goes after. He's got one in 1 Corinthians 6 and one in Ephesians 5. All of them begin with sexual sin as the first in their list. Coincidence or not? I don't know. Is it because of the strong grip that it can take upon people? In 1 Corinthians 6 he says, it is a sin like no other is sexual sin because it's the only sin that's actually a sin against the body, which is the temple of God. Even Jesus in Mark chapter 7 verses 20 to 23, when he talks about the things that come from within that defile a person, he puts sexual sins at the beginning of the list as well. And don't think you're not going to be faced with such temptations living in the Bible Belt area of Toowoomba. I'm sure you all saw the news this week that Toowoomba was apparently Australia's sexiest city, spending the most amount of money on the sex industry products. There are a number of terms that Paul uses here in Galatians 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, orgies. All of these fleshly things. Not just sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. All things that are sexual in nature. Remember what Jesus says? If you look after a woman with lust, you have committed adultery in your heart. He didn't say, as long as you don't cross this line, it's all okay with me. I've encountered so many Christians who think that, oh, we're going to get married one day. If we sleep together, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care. Oh, it doesn't matter if I watch porn. It's just something I do for entertainment. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter if I'm checking out people and saying all these derogatory things about them. We're told in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. That means get far away from it. All of these things are fleshly, are not things that should characterise those who belong in the kingdom of God. 
And we've already seen that the things of the flesh will stifle the work of the Spirit. The second category is religious sins. Paul speaks specifically of idolatry and sorcery or witchcraft. Now, idolatry is not just making something out of wood in your metal or in your metalwork class at high school and bowing down to it. It's placing something else first and primary in your life, which should be rightly the place of God, who is our creator, who is our rightful ruler. I remember once getting a survey from the good old St Kilda Football Club. One of the questions was, how much does your life revolve around the St Kilda Football Club? And I thought that was a stupid question because it actually, despite my sermon content, it actually doesn't revolve that much at all. If it did, I wouldn't have moved to Queensland. But a very good indication of where your true priorities are is where you spend your money and what takes up your time. If a Christian's primary pursuit is something other than Christ, then it's probably a fleshly idolatry. Something that is described here as not befitting of someone in the kingdom, and again, if it's fleshly, stifling the work of the Spirit. The same can be said of sorcery and witchcraft. I don't know if it's still the case, but I remember reading something that the most popular sales of books in Australia were still in the area of witchcraft. I've encountered hundreds of Christians absorbed in books, TV series, movies that all centre around witchcraft and sorcery. Never miss a single episode and then say they haven't got time to read the Bible. And they wonder why they're lacking in spiritual growth. The third category is interpersonal sins, like how we relate to one another. Now, this is the biggest list of interpersonal sins in any part of the Bible. And we've already seen the Galatians weren't really known at this point in time for being a loving community with one another. He speaks of enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy. All of these complete contrast to the work of the Spirit. All of these primarily about using other people to gain for myself. And in the fourth category, drinking sins. Now, while the Bible never condemns drinking, it does always condemn drunkenness. While we've already seen that the works of the flesh and the spirit are opposed to one another to stop you doing what you would like to do, this is one area where the scriptures explicitly make a contrast between the two. Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But instead, the opposite, be filled with the spirit. I think the contrast is made there is that both have the ability to lead in a particular direction, to influence your actions, influence the way in which you live your life. One has the ability to lead you in a way which is godly and honouring to God and one has an ability to lead you in the opposite direction. When I said drinking sins, plural, it's potential that orgies could even fall under this category. Because every single other use of this word throughout the scriptures, it's always in the context of drunkenness. And while that comes to the end of that list, and you might think, I'm not struggling with any of those things on the list. High five everyone, I'm doing okay. Remember it does say, and things like these. In other words, and all other fleshly things. All fleshliness is to be avoided because it is opposed to the work of the Spirit, and is opposed to who we are in Christ. 
and dishonouring to God. So Paul makes a very stern warning. As he's done previously elsewhere, he says, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's how unbefitting these things are in the life of a Christian. says, those whose life are characterised by these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the things which characterise those people outside the kingdom. They shouldn't characterise those people inside the kingdom. Now, before somebody gets paranoid and thinks, says those who do such things, oh, I've done one of those. Probably a more literal translation is those who make a practice or a habit of doing those things. So it's not like a disqualifying thing if you've done one of these things or a number of these things once, but whether your life is characterised by a constant pursuit of these things. Now, we all once were outside of the kingdom of God, but remember, we're told in Colossians 1.13, we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Therefore, we have new loyalties. We are to live as citizens of heaven, as Paul says in, in Philippians 3.20. Not as citizens of this world. We are to reflect the values of this new citizenship, not the values of the world in which we live. Because in verse 24 it says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and its desires. So if we're called to live by the Spirit, we've seen what, depending upon the flesh, what it produces, what are we to expect from a life that is lived by the Spirit? And that's our final section in verses 22 to 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. Now these things are complete polar opposites to what we've seen. We saw the works of the flesh were primarily about using others to gain for yourself. Now this now speaks more of loving others in order to benefit them. Just like the, the works of the flesh, it's not a comprehensive list as it's finished there, against such things, or other words, other things also like these and we're going to look at those in coming weeks because we've got another 10 weeks yet to go and we will go beyond that list as well. So rather than going back to being people who were provoking one another, envying number, one another in verse 26, he reminds them in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, if the Spirit has brought you to the point that you have been born again, as it speaks about in John chapter 3, or if you've been made alive by the Spirit, as it talks about in 1 Peter 3.18, so continue in that path that the Spirit is working to grow you closer in your relationship with God. As we saw in Colossians 2.6, just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, so continue to walk in him. Next week, the topic we're going to look at is how do we cultivate fruit? So next week we're going to look at how do we cultivate fruit, what is the source, what, do, what is our responsibility, and then we'll start to look at um, individual components in weeks after that. But as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, it's not just about pursuing the things that are in the list that are called the fruit of the Spirit. The Christian life has always got two aspects to it. When you see in Ephesians and in Colossians, Paul says, put off the old self, put on the new. Likewise, the Christian life is not just a pursuit of the fruit of the Spirit. There is also identifying the works of the flesh and putting them to death as well. 
Remember when, back when I used to do prison ministry down in Victoria, there was a bloke there named Mark who used to read Galatians 5, chapter 5 all the time. He said, I know that I'm not really good judge of how well I'm going spiritually. So he said he'd read these things, have a look at the two lists, the works of the flesh, the fruit of the spirit, and think, how am I going? Am I looking a bit more like this or a bit more like that? Is this addressing things I need to be getting rid of? Is this showing me areas in which I'm deficient? And I'm sure as we read through both lists with honesty, we'll be confronted by things that we're shocked, that we find of ourselves in that first list, and possibly things that we're a little bit disappointed that are lacking in the second, the fruit of the Spirit. But when it comes to the things of the flesh, remember, he has promised us, if we walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Do not tell yourself that, nah, it's hopeless. God hasn't provided me the means. We know that no one's going to achieve perfection. No one has beforehand. No one will in the future. But we should look at the list regarding the works of the flesh. Never just pass over one and go, well, that's just what I'm like. God's just got to get used to it. That's not an excuse. One phrase there in verse 21, remember it says, those who do such things, literally means those who practice such things. Now, what things do we tend to practice for? Like if you're in a sporting thing, you practice so that by doing things repeatedly you get better at something. If you're practicing like skills in a particular um, workplace, you're doing them over and over again in order to improve your ability in something. Now the old saying reflects that thing. Remember the expression, practice makes perfect. We understand that the more we do something, the better and more skilled we become at doing it. Now have you ever thought this? Every single thing that we ever do either trains us to be more godly or more ungodly. If everything we do, everything we practice is either more equipping us to become more godly or it is making us less godly. We'll see in which the way in which the scriptures speak about such training in both directions. 2 Peter 2.14 says, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. No, it's a practice habit. The more you spend time developing it, the stronger and more able one becomes. But then on the other hand, 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Paul understood that you can train yourself by practicing and, and walking by the Spirit, doing the right thing. You're actually equipping yourself for godliness. Paul's already said, the flesh, flesh and the spirit are greatly contrasted, opposed to one another. One will hinder you, stop you doing the other. When you're working in the flesh, it will actually not only be opposed, but it will stop you wanting to do the things according to the spirit. But we're also promised, if we walk by the spirit, you will not gratify the works of the flesh. So today, as we begin 2017, what will you pursue? 
What will you practice? What will you train for? Will our pursuits train us and equip us to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will we intentionally see and ignore the stumbling blocks that belong to our flesh that hinder the work of the Spirit in our life? Having been led by the Spirit to see our need for a Saviour, as Paul has said to the Galatians, keep in step, keep following that path which the Spirit is working in us to lead us to be more like Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that the calling of the gospel is a very high calling. We know that in and of our own personal ability, we are no more able to keep your standards any more now than we were before the day we were saved. However, you have provided your very spirit to live within us, to convict us of our sin, to lead us in truth, to empower us to live the life that you've called us to live. We thank you that you have given us your spirit as a guarantee and a seal of our salvation. And Lord, we pray that as we ponder uh, our year ahead of things that we will pursue, that we will not be seen to be having the same identical pursuits as everyone around us who don't know you, but our pursuits would be centred upon our true identity as children of God, purchased at a price, who long to see him for all eternity, to worship around his throne. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.